Welcome to this conversation. My guest today is Renee Rogers, and Renee Rogers is the head curator at the birthplace of Country Music Museum. Welcome to this conversation, Renee Rogers. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, Teresa. Well, I'm glad to have you here and to learn more because this museum is something I've been aware of and have not taken great advantage of, but it's called the Birthplace of Country Music Museum, and it commemorates the birth of country music in Bristol. It's called the Big Bang of music yeah. <laughs> or of country music. So let's start by having you tell us the story of the Big Bang in Bristol. So a lot of people assume because we're called the birthplace of country music museum that we were the very first country music recordings, which is not so. Um, there were recordings happening all the way back in 1923 of what was then called hillbilly music, which is kind of what we think of today as old time and traditional music. Um, but what happened in Bristol was a particularly significant set of recordings within that genre. And that is why we are called the birthplace of country music. That's why we're called the big bang of country music. And what happened here in Bristol that made them so significant is something that I, I call the perfect storm of events that sort of came together at that time. One was that um, in 1925 and 1926, there was a shift in the recording technology. Um, and so it shifted from the acoustic horn recording technology to the electric microphone. Um, and that meant that the actual recordings themselves were, they sounded better. They um, were more balanced. The sound was more vibrant. It was more nuanced. Um, there was more depth to it. it. It picked up the sound of some of the instruments better. So for instance, the guitar was often sort of beaten back by the banjo and the fiddle um, when it was being recorded by acoustic horn because it was more of a background or sort of rhythm instrument at the time. But, but the electric microphone could pick up some of those sort of subtleties a bit better. You know, when you have better sounding records, they tend to sell better. Um, so there's that, that issue that sort of changed at the time. And then the person who came to Bristol as the record producer, his name was Ralph Peer. He was with the Victor Talking Machine Company. Um, he had been hired specifically by them to build their hillbilly catalog because they were falling behind some of the other record labels in that particular genre. And he had a, a really good um, record already of what he could do in that genre with his work with OK Records. Um, and so they hired him specifically to hunt for hillbilly songs. And in Bristol, it was one of the first times that because of this new recording equipment, they were able to travel outside the major studios much more easily, which meant that they could actually go where the music was being made every day and find a lot of artists all at once. Um, and so when he came to Bristol, that's exactly what he did. He put an advertisement in the paper. He went and talked to the local um, civic organizations about the work that they were doing. And there was an article in the newspaper about it. So it brought out a whole bunch of artists to come to him here where they lived and record the, that music. But the other thing that's really cool about Ralph Peer is that he was such a visionary in the music industry as a whole. So um, he specifically, when he signed on with Victor Talking Machine Company, took a very low salary in exchange for um, using his own music publishing company for copyrights. Um, and the way he did copyrights was a little bit different. He was copywriting both the performance and the song if, if there was no like already known copyright attached to it. Um, the artists themselves were getting paid royalties, but also a one-off fee for each record that they, each song that they recorded. And all of that is very much foundational to the way the music industry works today. And what's very cool is that the, the company that he started, it was called Southern Music Publishing Company. 
it was also really big in um, Latin music later. He also worked a lot in classical music. Before he did hillbilly music, he was very active in race records, which was the, the word that was used then for the genre of music, like what we would think of as soul and, and blues music um, with African-American artists. Um, but his company that he started back in the 1920s is now a company called Pure Music that is run by his granddaughter. It, has, it was run by his son until quite recently. He was still a major part of it, but I think he's handed over some of the, the control of the company to his daughter. And it is the largest independent music publishing company in the world. And I started goodness. here in 1920s. Yeah, so I mean, that's a really cool part of the story that a lot of people don't know. And then of course, the third thing is the artists that actually played here and the songs that they played. First off, we had Ernest Stoneman, who was a recording veteran at the time. He had worked with Ralph Peer numerous times before this. And in fact, Ralph Peer had called him and asked him where he should go to find this hillbilly genre music that he was looking for. And that's and it was Ernest Stoneman who said, you need to come to Bristol. Bristol itself wasn't necessarily a hotbed of that, but it's in the middle of the mountains. It's easy to get to because it was a big, a big city in this area at the time. So, of course, Ernest Stoneman recorded about 16 different songs with other artists and his family members. Then it was also the first recordings of the Carter family, who are now known as the first family of country music, and the first recordings of Jimmy Rogers, who is now known as the father of country music. So you have this amazing recording veteran who brought Ralph Peer here in the first place. You've got two of the most foundational acts in country music recording here for the very first time. And then you have, um, in total, there were 19 acts who recorded here, 76 songs were recorded, 69 of which were released. So they got a huge catalog of songs out of this, a lot of Appalachian standards, a lot of pretty amazing performances. Well, I have a bunch of questions, of course. <laughs> the first thing that strikes me is your use of the term hillbilly. Isn't yes. hillbilly a pejorative term these days? You know, it is. A lot of people use it that way. And of course, a lot of people also own it um, and have sort of taken it back as a positive term. But in the past, um, in the 1920s and 30s in particular, that is what early country music was called. That old time traditional songs that sort of evolved into the modern country that we know today was called hillbilly music. That was its genre. And, you know, the recording industry is a huge part of why musical genres were defined. Um, of course, not everyone listens to one type of music and one type of music alone, and not all artists make one type of music and one type of music alone. But if you're marketing and distributing music, genre is a great way to sell music. And so when the record industry started, that recording industry started, genres became really common way of sort of defining what the music was, who it was for, and who was making it. So hillbilly music was white, rural old time traditional music. Um, race records, like I mentioned earlier, was um, black artists who those marketeers and those producers were thinking are making it specifically for a black audience. Of course, those audiences were buying across genres. Those audience, those musicians were influencing each other. Genre is a very fluid boundary, but when it, in marketing terms, it's a very defined boundary. Well, exactly. Do you call it today when people come and tour the museum? Do you talk about hillbilly music? And do, we do. do people today who are playing this kind of music call it hillbilly music? Probably not modern musicians who are playing it. They probably would refer to themselves as old time musicians. 
a few might who know that history, but in general, they probably use the term old time. And, and certainly within the museum, we use the term hillbilly because it's authentic to the history we're talking about. And there's also a very cool story, again, about Ralph Peer, about how that hillbilly term allegedly came about. Um, he was recording a group of um, old time musicians in 1924 or 25, and he asked them what their band name was. And they had just recently formed, they didn't have a formal band name yet. They had just heard that there was a chance to be recording the kind of music that they made. And they said, you can call us um, anything you want. We're just a bunch of hillbillies from Virginia and North Carolina. And he wrote down the hillbillies and that was actually their band name. No way. Well, <laughs> so I wanted to ask you a technology question. You talked about how that that was one of the three things that came together to make this a big bang. And you said that there had been an improvement. At that point, was the electric mic connected to a stylus that put the groove in vinyl? Was it actually a record? It put it in what we call a wax master. So it was a wax disc that was then the master recording. And then the lacquer discs that the 78s were made out of were pressed from that mold, that, that wax master. I said earlier that we recorded that they had recorded 76 songs here, 69 of which were released. It's probable that a few of those that didn't release might have gotten damaged in the drive back. You know, this was the, the height of summer when they were here, the end of July, beginning of August. Some of them might have gotten damaged. Some of them might have melted a little bit. Um, a few, I think they chose not to release in the end. But yeah, so it was a wax master. And it would have been the same with the acoustic horn, both as those discs and before discs, the actual cylinders, because they were cylinder players before they were disc players. Now, I've seen the cylinder players that where the little groove is in this round thing that's mm -hmm. like a waxy kind of substance. I don't know. And, what and it, it looks like a new, it looks like a toilet paper tube, essentially. Well, yeah, it does. But what about they used to record on wire? Do you know anything about that? You know, I don't actually, I don't know anything about that, but now I want to look it up. <laughs> well, I looked it up and the pictures are not very clear and yeah. I know they did it, but I've never seen it. So yeah. we'll just challenge everybody who's listening to go find out more. And, you know, you asked earlier if they, they were recording directly onto the vinyl or the lacquer and that did happen later. But at first in the time we're talking about, it was those wax masters, but there is, there was direct to lacquer recording direct to disc recording. And you can still do that. For instance, here in Bristol, the Ernest Tube, which is just around the corner from the, the museum, that's what they do. They record bands to those discs um, as this uh, to, get, to harken back to those old ways of, of, of addressing that technology. And it creates a really unique and interesting end yeah. product. I saw a demonstration once of a recording onto something that it looked like aluminum foil and how you know, you just make the sound and it goes on there, makes the groove and you somehow play it back. And it's real, of course, the cylinders were on essentially tin foil um, and they were very, obviously not very um, hardy. So they, they often got damaged very quickly that you couldn't play them very often and get the recording back very often because that would rip and tear and that kind of thing. And then they moved on to wax and then they moved on to um, the hard lacquer. All right, so much for the technology part of the Big Bang, and then the genius of Ralph Peer, and then the artists. But I want to talk a little bit, first of all, about the museum itself. Okay. How did the museum come to be there? I see that it's associated with the Smithsonian. Where'd the it money is. come from? Where'd the idea come from? How did it happen? The museum has been many, many years in the making. Um, over 20 years ago, a group of people here and 
the, the Bristol area and the, the surrounding region came together wanting to recognize and celebrate those recordings that happened here in Bristol because they just weren't talked about the way they should have been. They weren't. And so that group um, at the time was known as the Birthplace of Country Music Alliance, and they were working very hard. They're the ones who um, worked together to bring Rhythm and Roots, worked to bring the original, the museum that used to be in the Bristol Mall, the mountain that turned into the Mountain Music Museum later. They brought a lot of things like musicians and, and other acts to Bristol to sort of connect with that history. And the idea that they had at the beginning, um, or at least some of them had an idea at the beginning that we should be a museum of bigger note. It could be its own technology center and its own sort of way of experiencing music in a very um, in the moment way, as opposed to, in a, as opposed to um, sort of the traditional idea of a museum where everything's in a case. There were two different groups within that who, who thought differently about what the, the aim of the group was. So some stayed with the, the original BCMA and it turned into the ACMA, which was the Appalachian Cultural Music Association, I believe. Um, and again, focusing in on bringing music to and acts to the region. And then the other bit became stayed on as BCMA and worked towards that museum. The fundraising went on for over 12 to 15 years, just trying to get the money together, getting the tax credits together, getting the historic tracks, because it's a historic building, so you had to go through all of the things through the governmental agencies around heritage and historic environment. And within that time, we also applied for and got Smithsonian affiliation. So the idea behind Smithsonian affiliation is that the Smithsonian is bringing its resources and recognizing museums that are sharing important community resources within towns and, and cities across America. Um, and so we were accepted as a Smithsonian affiliate before we ever had a bricks and mortar museum, which is pretty exciting. And then we opened on August 1st, 2014. So we started um, the proper construction of the museum in 2012 and the, the design of the, the exhibits and the films and all the interactives, all of that was happening over a period of about two or three years. And the museum opened on August, First, 2014, and we've been here a little over eight years now. My guest today is Renee Rogers. She's head curator at the birthplace of Country Music Museum, which is in downtown Bristol. And we're talking about how everything came to be. But now let's talk about how things are for a minute, yeah. Renee. If people come to the exhibit, to the museum, they come to Cumberland Square in downtown Bristol. Mm -hmm. And what are they going to see when they go in your doors? So I think they're going to be surprised because a lot of people don't know what, I think especially local people don't know what to expect. And so when they come in, they're like, wow, this isn't what I was expecting. I think they were expecting something a bit smaller. We are, we have about 24,000 square feet um, of museum space. Um, the upstairs of the museum is devoted to our permanent exhibit. So upstairs is where you go to talk, to learn about all the things we talked about at the beginning of the show about what we celebrate at the museum. So the, the history and legacy of the 1927 Bristol Sessions and that context of the technology change, um, the people who were here, the, the type of music that was being played, all of that is, is what you'll explore in the core exhibits of the museum. But what's cool about our museum is that we have such a lot of experiential activities for you to do upstairs. So it is a very experiential space. You are not just looking at images and objects and reading text, you are actually listening to music. Every room has a soundscape. We have four theater film experiences. We have numerous interactives ranging from a space where you can listen to about 45 seconds of every single song that was 
released from the 1927 Bristol Sessions and learn about who played it, what the lyrics of the song were, what day they were released, all of that information. Um, you can look up songs based on what you're interested in. If you want to listen to songs all about drinking and dancing, you can look at songs under that theme, or you can look at songs about faith, or you can look at songs about death and dying, because old time music can be both raucous and depressing. <laughs> because um, it was very much grounded in the world that they were living in and, and the life that they were living. Um, we also have numerous other interactives. So there's a sing-along booth where you can do um, sing some of the songs yourself. There's a song where you can sort of trace how that song sounded in 1927 and how it's been re-recorded over the years by different types of acts and how it sounds more modern or throughout, throughout time. Because that's another really important part of the the museum is not looking at the story we are telling is just this one moment in 1927. We really look at the sort of way that this music then became popularized and distributed more widely through, especially through things like television, movies, radio, um, but also the way that that music still lives on today and has influenced artists that you would recognize today. Um, That's amazing. I, I need to get you to kind of wrap up what people see so that we can move on because I have so many more questions. But it sounds like it's absolutely fabulous and would take a lot of time that you'd want to a lot, a lot of time. Yeah. You know, we tell people if they're coming in to give it at least an hour and a half, maybe two hours. And because you can come in and use your wristband all day long so you can go away and have a snack and a little bit of a rest and come back. But the one other thing I did want to say in the permanent exhibits that's very unusual is we have a live working radio station where you can see DJs and bands playing. You can listen to old radio shows and also our radio shows. And that means you can then carry the museum and our radio station with you outside the doors of the museum. And this is Radio Bristol? Is that what it we is, call yes. it? Yes, yes. And so that's so operated by the museum? Yes, so it's, it's, it's our radio staff, um, which are part of the larger organization. And it's within our permanent exhibits so you can actually see into the studio and into the dj booth um sometimes we even bring kids in there like during pick along summer camp we brought the kids in there and let them be on the air um so it's it's a great way i mean we have like 30 unique programs that you can listen to throughout the week 24 7 so how much does it cost to get in those doors renee you know um so our our general admission is 13 dollars plus tax but there are discounts for a variety of things so for instance we have seniors and veterans and student discounts. We have group tour and student tour discounts. And we've recently, earlier this year, joined um, something called Museums for All, which is a way to make museums more accessible. And that means that if you come in with an EBT SNAP card, um, you can get in yourself and three other people with that card can get in for only $3 each. EBT stands for? Uh, I can't, it's basically it's like the, the food, food stamp. Food stamp card, yeah. Yeah. All right. Who comes so to the museum? Oh, gosh. Um, we have been visited by people from um, all 50 states, over 45 countries. Um, we get we certainly get locals a lot. We get a lot of um, we get a lot of group tours. So we get a lot of bus tours that have come from all over the place, from out of um, the country and from all over the country. And we get a lot of local and regional schools. Um, we get tourists. So, you know, just yesterday we had some people who were doing the Crooked Road who stopped here as one of their stops on the Crooked Road. We have people at the hotels, you know, who are here for work or for business or for passing through who stop in. Um, we have school groups, I mean, church groups, all sorts of different people, um, even academics and scholars. And we get a lot of musicians who stop in when they're playing in and around the area. 
How much money does this museum come in? Because it seems to me like it's planted a big old flag of this is a destination, come here, this is the identity of the of the city now, and that you're probably making a ton of money and attracting a lot of people to the economy. Well, you know, museums are nonprofits. Um, and in general, museums only get about 25% of their funding from admissions and people coming through our doors. And that's because most museums are trying really hard to be as accessible as possible. And so they don't have huge ticket prices and a lot of their programming is free or low cost. But we get a lot of grant funding and local government and state government support um, donors and, and local businesses. So we're very fortunate that we get a lot of help and a lot of financial support. But I do think that you're right. We are part of that economic driver here in Bristol and the wider region. And we certainly know of um, both of the hotels have mentioned that that part of their decisions to, to build in downtown Bristol were around the museum and the festival in particular. Um, we've had other businesses who said that. And while we haven't done an economic impact study specific to the museum, we do know that the work that BCM does brings in tourist and other economic dollars to um, Bristol in particular and the, the region as a whole. Yeah, you can tell by the names of the hotels that they're capitalizing on the identity. I mean, it's like it's which is first the chicken or the egg, which is first the museum or the hotels. But I don't want to dwell on that because we've got to talk about your special exhibits yes. and particularly the current one or the upcoming one. Yes. So besides our permanent exhibit space, we have a 2000 square foot special exhibit and we do rotating exhibits in there throughout the years. So we usually do about two or three per year. Um, and we are opening a new exhibit only here for seven weeks. So people need to plan ahead to come and see it. Usually we have them for much longer though, but this is a short one. And it is called 1968, A Folsom Redemption. And it is all about Johnny Cash's live concerts and recordings at Folsom Prison in 1968. It's an amazing photograph exhibit with the, so there was a journalist named Jean Bailey and a photographer from, from one of the California news, local California newspapers who were invited to go to Folsom with Johnny Cash and, and his, ret, his retinue. Um, and so the exhibit is in the words of the journalist, Jean Bailey, and then the photographs are from Dan Poosh, who was with him as the photographer. And it's about 32 different images, Johnny Cash at the prison in performance in front of the inmates um, with June backstage. Because there's a few um, pictures at the end of the next year in 1929, 1929, 1969, when he was um, getting geared up for his new live, his new television show, the Johnny Cash Show. So it, it sort of ranges from that that concert in early 1968 till he was getting ready for his Johnny Cash show in 1969. I can't wait to see it. You said it started on September the first. When does it end? So it ends on October 20th, and we have also supplemented it with a whole host of different objects. So it's not just picture-led. We have lots of um, records on display. We have some memorabilia that was loaned to us by Hard Rock International. We have some things from our own our own museum collection. So that we have a guitar that he owned and played and signed. So we have all sorts of objects too. So you'll, it's a really engaging exhibit, and there'll be obviously some Johnny Cash music in the gallery while you're there. Renee Rogers, you have so much to talk about. You're going to have to really talk fast because we've got two more. <laughs> we've got two more subjects. First, I'll go with the community question. You have lots of events. Name them as quickly as you can. But how many kinds of things do you have that bring in people from the community? So we do a whole bunch of different types of events, both um, 
family oriented, adult and children oriented, or children oriented. And so, for instance, we do community, we do one free community day a year at least. We also do family fun days that are free to the public. Our next community free day is October 29th, for instance, where anyone can come in for free all day long and we'll have some family activities. We also do some monthly things like we do two monthly community jams, one the second Saturday of the month, which is a general community jam, and one that's the fourth Saturday of the month, which is a bluegrass community jam, and we do that in partnership with East Tennessee Bluegrass Music Association. Um, both of those are free. They're open to all experiences and ages. Um, bring your instrument and come jam. Bring your instrument you come and play, yeah. And it's also a great thing for our visitors because they enjoy hearing the live music. We also do a monthly speaker series each month where we talk to different people about music and Appalachian history and culture and technology and all sorts of things that connect with our content. And we do sort of one-off things. Like for instance, on November 4th this year, we are having a um, square dance, our first square dance in two years since COVID. And we're super excited about that. And then we do a lot of like special exhibit specific programming. So for instance, with the Folsom concert, on September 29th, we're doing, we have the journalist who was with Johnny Cash in 1968 will be here from California doing a talk at the museum about that experience. And then on October 20th, the last day of the exhibit will be um, screening a film, a fictionalized account of life behind the bars of behind the walls of Folsom prison. All right. I was going to ask about Bristol Rhythm and Roots. I'm not going to just to say <laughs> that you're down there in the middle of all that and people can check you out. But what I want to ask you about, how did you come to be in this position with the Birthplace of Country Music Museum? What is your background? Are you a musician? Museum I am not a trained? musician, but I, I cannot play. the. I've tried to play the banjo several times and my dog leaves the room when I start playing. So that probably tells you everything you need to know about that. You know, it's from a roundabout way. I am from Bristol originally. I grew up here. Um, I left after high school to go to the College of William and Mary up in Williamsburg, Virginia. And then I left there to do my graduates um, work in England at the University of Durham. I did my advanced degrees, my graduate degrees in Roman archeology, span which has absolutely nothing to do with hillbilly <laughs> music. You'll be surprised to hear. But I've been worked for an organization in England called English Heritage for 12 years, which was focused on interpreting history for general audiences and for academic audiences. So I spent 12 years doing that. Just any type of history that was from the Paleolithic all the way up to modern history, I was working on the interpretation of that through their publishing department. So when I moved back to Bristol, it was right when the museum was getting off the ground. It was in 2012 that I got asked to on a freelance basis to help with some of the writing and editing of the script for the museum. And 10 years later, here I am the head curator of the museum. <laughs> Just to clarify, you're saying your head curator, I was suspecting your title was going to be executive director. Is there somebody who tells you what to do? Or are you at the top of the food chain? We do have a managing director over the entire organization. So the organization is the museum, Bristol Rhythm and Roots Reunion Music Festival, and then Radio Bristol. So we have a managing director over those three branches of the organization. And so she is my, she is my immediate boss. The head yeah. honcho, but boy, underneath the roof of that museum, it's Renee Rogers. I'm a medium cheese, I guess. <laughs> medium cheese. Instead of the big cheese, you're the medium yes. cheese. Well, yes. it's very impressive and I can't wait to get there. I just, like I said, I've kind of not taken advantage of it, but you've gotten me enthused and I hope that you've had the same effect on uh, audience members who may be listening. Okay, for anyone who is listening, you don't have to love country music to enjoy this museum because there's so much other bits of history and 
stories about the technology and how it's influenced other musical genres. And, and if nothing else, there's always a new special exhibit. So I think anyone can enjoy this museum. Thank you so much, Renee Rogers, birthplace of country music head curator. And thanks above all to the listeners for tuning in to this conversation here on WEHC. You can find us over the air Wednesdays at six, Sundays at two. You can visit our archives at wehcfm.com. Thanks again, Renee. Thanks again, listeners. And please stay tuned to 90.7.